As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda, my good friend Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, my brother? How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual, I might end up muting myself in a minute here because there's like a riot happening outside. No context. Just wanted to let you know. <laughs> just, just another day in Puerto Rico, right? You got it. <laughs> just, just another day in San Juan. And I'm with my other good friend, Jose Nino. What's up, my man? How are you? Uh, I'm doing excellent, Henry. Thank you for having me on. And um, also, thank you so much, Danny, for also having me on. Yeah, no problem. We're, Glad to we're, have you. We, yeah, we're really uh, appreciative. Appreciate. I can't even say that word. We're really thankful that you, uh, you know, you're jumping on this show because we know that. I guess a topic at hand today is is uh, is, a, is geopolitical in, in nature, and we've actually haven't really been talking about too many modern stories. We've been we've been focusing more so on historical evergreen content, but. I feel like this is a topic where it's it's definitely an inflection p- point, and the reason why I wanted to talk to you is because I've been reading your stuff for a long time. We've been talking talking obviously for a long time. Um, for anyone who's for, who's listening for the first time, Jose is is an excellent political writer. Uh, he writes for um, I, I know you freelance. You you write for a lot of different websites. You have a great podcast called El Nino Speaks. So I just wanted to plug your stuff first. Um, but you've been, I've been reading you for a long time and you've been kind of predicting a lot of these things. And I feel like you have one of the best holistic views on global politics out there. So anyone who doesn't follow you, uh, I would definitely recommend it, but we're going to talk about Saudi, Saudi Iran relations and, and really the recent deal that was made or the, the recent normalization between uh, the recent normalization of re, of uh, relationships between Saudi Arabia and Iran, brokered by China. I guess I'll start this off by just asking you your general take. I would say this is one of the biggest geopolitical accomplishments that China has been able to like facilitate, and it's a sign that that it's going to become a more trustworthy partner for mediatory efforts and other <clears throat> campaigns to stabilize certain conflict zones, especially in like the Middle East, in stark contrast to the US, which I've described in my writing as a chaos agent. And just look at its litany of military interventions, color revolutions, covert operations, and other forms of um, external interference. It's starting to look more and more like an erratic <clears throat> strategic partner for, for a host of countries, especially in the global south. 
add in the volatile domestic situation in the U.S., and it makes the Chinese model look more attractive. For one, China hasn't really intervened militarily since the Sino-Vietnamese War of like 1979. Uh, that that's also like in stark contrast to the U.S. and if China is actually able to stabilize this proxy conflict between Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran, it would bring a ton of stability to the Middle East because that's been at the crux of <clears throat> most geopolitical tensions in that region for the past four decades because, um, and even I'd say prior because many people tend to forget that um, Imperial Iran and the the Saudis were also at loggerheads over a host of issues. And there's a lot of structural um, factors at play there because Iran has always viewed itself as a very strong, like, civilization state in that region. And it's going, regardless of what, what type of government it has, so it's going to exert its influence, which will butt heads with whatever Sunni power or any other power that claims like the mantle of like pan-Sunni movements, um, there's just going to be an inevitable clash between those two or even like Turkey, for example, as well. So I think like China being able to kind of broker that type of peace will pay, uh, pay a huge amount of dividends. There's, there's also economic interest behind that too, as well with China trying to get its Belt Road Initiative up and running in the Middle East, but um, as like the U.S. is focusing more of its resources to containing China, China does have an opportunity in many regions such as the Middle East, Central Asia, and Africa to to invest and bring some um, some degree of stability where the U.S. has brought about nothing but like chaos and dysfunction to a lot of these countries and i'd say this is also extends to a lot of like the collective west as well which is largely entranced by the neoliberal neoconservative interventionist mindset that is more focused on trying to remake the world in the west's increasingly dysfunctional image as opposed to trying to engage with countries in a much more even-handed and constructive manner. You know what this reminds me of? So after World War One, when the Ottoman Empire was being divided up, all the Arabs in the region, they wanted America to be the broker. They wanted to be, they wanted America to represent them and be the broker of the different territories that were going to be distributed across, you know, uh, you know, between ultimately the French and the British. And the reason why is because there was really no history. They actually saw them as a neutral party. And the only relationship between Americans and Arabs in the 20th century or in the early 20th century at the very least, they were either business relations, so businessmen or, or you know, some type of, you know, missionary church. That was their exposure to Americans. And by all means, it was much more preferable to that of the British or the French. Now, fast forward 100 years later, now China's playing that role. And I just find it so strange. Oh, yes. Yeah, um, external actors um, generally <clears throat> tend to be preferable when they're 
inspired by more of a real politique mindset for a lot of these countries because for one um most arab countries are not going to really like trust um iran or even like great satan or even the turks for that matter (laughs) um for settling these type of disputes so they'll turn to to china which doesn't have like this reputation like the u.s because whatever trust the u.s used to have has just totally dissipated um over the course of like the past century now so like china's going to naturally be viewed um in a much more positive manner even russia um to a lesser extent is viewed more positively and like it's even funnier too because of the fact that like russia is like probably like strongest one of its like strongest partner is like iran a country that it basically treated like a punching bag in its imperial phase and also um during world war ii when the soviet union um invaded iran which is just which is like testament to just how fanatic uh western foreign policy has become that even historical like adversaries are mending ties like that but well i mean in fairness the you know the uk is one of our best allies and you know they were the people who we revolted against (laughs) so you know time heals wounds yes (laughs) curious though um you know you mentioned that uh you know china coming in is seen as a more positive alternative to the united states as, as a broker for you know, a normalization of the relations between the two countries uh, because of the history behind it. I wonder, because you also pointed out that China is seen as as bringing, you know, stability, bringing investments, bringing things like that. Some of the criticisms against China is that, you know, they use uh, agreements like these as, as almost like vulture capitalist endeavors, right? Where they'll set up, you know, uh, infrastructure and, and do different types of investments and you know, monkey around with the uh, with the with the numbers such that it becomes impossible to repay the debt, uh, thus granting China uh, an amount of power over the, the the folks that they're helping out. Firstly, do you think that that's a fair uh, thing to point out about China in this context? And secondly, what do you think China's angle is in in being the broker if they have one at all? Yeah, there's probably, um, I think there might be some validity to that type of criticism because um, I do see China behaving like most great powers in how it's going to try to boost its geoeconomic profile. It might not pursue the Western style of like imperialism or whether it's like through like hard power or through its like soft power, but it is going to try to um economically dominate in one way or the other and i'd say a lot of its motivation in trying to secure the middle east is lies in like the maintenance of its like belt and road initiatives and some of like it's like string of pearls like strategy as well like it does have like economic interests it still has to like import tons of oil from saudi arabia and iran so there's definitely like um, that there's not much altruism there. I don't think um, they're necessarily doing it um, like out of the goodness of their heart. And um, in fact, if you look at like the situation in Yemen, um, China has a position that 
is curiously very similar to the Saudis in the U.S. in that they want to promote, like, territorial integrity there um, due to, like, um, Yemen's, like, strategic, like, positioning and all of that as far as, like, shipping lanes are concerned. So they, um, they are, they have become, like, strange bedfellows with, like, the U.S. and the Saudis in that respect where they're, they're trying to, like, maintain, like, stability there. And, um... <clears throat> I think that like what we are seeing is um, somewhat of a return to pre-World War One geopolitics where there's going to be um, competing poles and there will be um, stronger like respect for um sovereignty within certain spheres of influence but there will be like countries that will obviously be have like uh, obviously have like more economic and military clout and china is definitely on the economic front is going to exercise a lot of like, outsized influence not just in the sphere of influence but also throughout parts of asia and i think that's an inevitable like feature but i'm not very convinced by um some of the fear-mongering that this is going to be like the groundwork for like a Chinese empire or some type of like model that's going to export like Chinese values, whatever. On the World War One allegory, another way you could probably look at it is that we're pre-World War One in the sense that we're going to have a bunch of alliance systems that may or may not run counter to one another because it sounds like this is a bit of a web. It seems strange, right, that China, this new actor, you know, it can make such big ground uh, in, in mending a relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran, <laughs> who, at least in the, the last 50 years, definitely more, but, you know, have been at each other's throats. And yeah, now these, the, the, these Muslims weird. are supposed to be <laughs> arguing over the lineage of Muhammad. Exactly. <laughs> or at least that's what the normie think. Right. Come on. This is a 1400 year <laughs> blood feud. You're going to you're going to end it now. Right. Don't you have, still have a bone to pick? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, don't you still we still haven't settled who is the actual successor of muhammad i think we still need to fight this one out like there's no way that we can mend relationships yet without having this answer um it's it's i'm sorry to to interject with with you know kind of a dumb joke but i mean yeah, I think no, that you, is you, the mentality you're that not has wrong. been the mentality in the middle east with mm -hmm. you know at least among the united states and especially israel is to right. divide the Sunnis and Shiites and, and create right. as much religious conflict as possible. Right. I mean, but nevertheless, you know, to, to Jose's earlier point, this is China's a very big win for China in terms of diplomacy. And I don't think, you know, I don't want to put it too lightly that, that they've broken quite a big ground uh, by doing this. So I'm curious, you know, how is it, do you think, that China... Uh, um, has been able to make such significant inroads in this particular matter in such a relatively quick, uh, small amount of time? Well, there isn't a lot of factors um, involved here that um, it, it has played um, the long game in terms of hammering out trade deals and going on charm offensives and a lot of countries in the global south to foster these relations and it's actually not very flashy either with the exception of like the belt road initiative but it 
and I think one of the biggest um, appeals that China has is that it's not really interested in engaging in the type of like external interference that the U.S. Is, and the West is known for, which makes it much easier for these countries to um, cooperate with it. For example, many U.S. allies or strategic partners in the Middle East will often get um, like hung out to dry. Like, just look at like Saddam Hussein, who is like practically like a CIA asset, and then ended up like executed thanks to the second Iraqi invasion. So I think the Saudis like know that um, with especially after um, the whole Khashoggi incident and even like their war in Yemen that the Western media is not always going to be on their side. And also like the, their ties to like um, alleged ties like the 9-11 attacks that the U.S. is not always going to be on their side. So they're going to um, have to like diversify and China is going to be a much more attractive partner because of the fact that as well, like China does not base its like relations on ideological criteria. They're not going to sanction you or go on this <clears throat> blood libel campaign against your country because it's LGBT laws are like um, insufficiently woke by Western standards. They're just going to do business and like let you manage your own affairs and keep your culture and like, Govern, uh, style of governance intact and I think like as the West like becomes like much more ideologically rigid with its foreign policy um, it's not only going to isolate itself but it's also going to just become like less attractive for like um, most of these countries in the global south um, who are just going to go towards <clears throat> more ideologically flexible like real politique countries when it comes to economic and military affairs Bears. And I'd also call attention to the fact that, especially like in Europe too, where you have much more stagnant economies, the Eurasian landmass is go is looking more and more economically robust as like decades go on. And when you see the the collapse of like the modern welfare state transpire in like Europe and even like the US, most of these countries' economies are going to be very stagnant or even like um, on the point of like total collapse within a matter of decades. Whereas if you look at like the East, from like the Middle East to like East Asia, you do see sleeker forms of governance on um, when it comes to like welfare matters or just overall like, um, regulation of economic affairs they're not like laissez-faire but they they they're not as like intricate as these bloated western style bureaucracies <clears throat> so they're going to want to um go with the strong horse which is gonna be like china soon yeah it's got a um, host of demographic issues and whatnot but it hasn't really embraced the <clears throat> the whole like managerial model that I think um, is on its way out or it's going to just cause a massive implosion in like the West. And those factors, in my opinion, um, will make it make China um, just become more of an attractive partner to uh, consort with for 
most countries in the Middle East, um, Africa, and like Central Asia, like in the long term. That's an interesting perspective, perspectives on like the future of some of these Western players, very specifically the United States and, and their, you know, uh, um, attractiveness to uh, places like Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, in, in terms of partnering with them uh, on, a, on a host of diplomatic um, uh, uh, endeavors. But uh, it's still, I guess, I still have trouble understanding where Am I just mistaken or have we been misled to believe that Iran and Saudi Arabia don't really like each other? Because I, despite the, the very rational um, you know, example that you've given us here, uh, Jose, uh, I, I just find it hard to believe that they'd give up any you know, of their prior animosity just because they think China looks like a better winner for the future. You know, is it that they weren't really that mad at each other or that perhaps that they've wanted to be at peace for longer than what we're led to believe in the West? Well, I do think that they will clash over like some issues here and there. And I'd also add Turkey into the mix too, because these are all civilization states in one shape or the other, and they have um, geopolitical... Wait, what... Before let me let me stop you right there because I think I think it would be helpful if you explained what a civilization state is because we always talk about na- talk about nation states. I think we we can if we I think um, you know drawing the difference between a nation state and a civilization state would be useful. Yeah, like the nation state, like um, is actually a relatively new development when you look at it um, from like a macro picture. Because it's generally confined to like a historical territory or like ethno-linguistic group or even like a system of government. Whereas um, civilization states, you can go back to like antiquity to, like to, tr- um, to trace them um, as like a unique civilization in its like very own right. Like, um, like for example, like Iran, it might be like a... a um, Islamic Republic in its current form of government, but it's part of like a continuum, a historical continuum that goes back thousands of years um, of like of imperial governance that still has vestiges of that, even in its um, present like political modality. And these are really um, old type of like civilizations. And you see this also with China too, which is an ancient civilization. And even to this day, um, despite having like an ostensibly communist regime, um, in many respects, it still has many characteristics from like it's like bureaucracy that are akin to um, imperial um, <clears throat> Chinese like dynasties. And even the way like Xi Jinping functions is, is not that different from, I would say like a Chinese emperor, especially like um, during COVID where he was not really um, meeting a lot of people like, um, Chinese emperors back then were also quite, um, could be quite isolated and would only, um, meet with like certain dignitaries for like very, very special occasions. Yeah. I would say like the, the, the rise of like these like civilization states, um, will naturally, there's definitely a cultural component to them and you can't really eliminate the nationalistic um, instincts too because I think that um, genie's out of the bottle. But what you're going to see more of is states that are going to 
try to defend not just their national interests but their cultural um but their, their cultures from the west which has a universalistic vision to transform the rest of the world and shape it in its own image and that's why like this um civilization state model is starting to gain traction and you will see some of these civilization states use forms of like tactical nationalism to push back against perceived encroachments from the west but it um you will see more of like a rise of like states that have generally been kind of kept down by um western hegemony reassert themselves and start um engaging in like geopolitical type of games that were typical of like pre-world war one geopolitics and th that's just like how a lot of like international relations has occurred like it's basically like to put it in simple terms like the unipolar moment is over and you will <clears throat> start to see um maybe like some regional conflagrations more of them like pop off because of the simple fact that like the u.s cannot be like policing every part of the world but I don't think they're going to be as catastrophic as some um some unipolar moment proponents say they'll be. So, yeah, I think that's where we're kind of heading, more or less. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. So, with... Do you think this could have happened 10 years ago? So, before the U.S. essentially blew its wad in Ukraine, figuratively speaking, do you think that they could, that the Saudis would have, you know, dared to start a relationship with Iran? Maybe not, maybe not 10 years ago, but during the Trump era, do you think that could have been a possibility? Or do you think this is like, this is like a unique timing thing? Yeah, where, why not? 
Yeah, why not? I mean, they can they can talk. We can do business. Why not? Yeah, like <laughs> do, do they see? Okay, well, the U.S. is in is in is 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 uh effectively leaving the Middle East right now. It's time to make new regional partners. Like, there's got to be a new security framework in the Middle East. We can't really depend on the United States. They're more interested. You know, there there's a big pivot to not only Europe, but eventually there's going to be a larger pivot to the to to East Asia. Do you think that it's just a matter of like just the timing is right for them? They're like, okay, well, better do it now if we're if if there's a time to do it. Yeah, there's definitely a timing component, but and I'd also point to just the U.S. as like domestic affairs, um, because like the Republican Party is a has become not only like really like pro like Zionist but like the Trumpian faction was very pro Saudi but you can't always um rely on that um political faction to be in power it'll and with the way US politics is becoming it's becoming very polarized and you're not going to see a, um a lot of stability and con- um continuity in foreign policy so i think like the Saudis are realizing that um on any like given like presidential cycle they could have a government that on one um in one year will be very pro saudi but then another that's going to be um anti saudi that's going to have um that's going to give like the media a big megaphone to continue to shame it and and even like um create the environment for like punitive actions and whatnot taken against it whether it's like in the form of sanctions color revolutions or worst case scenario military intervention so with china you have like a one a pretty stable one party state that's gonna um have a very competent foreign policy core that's gonna be intact and there's not gonna be any doubts about what chinese policy will be like in 2023 or in 2030 and that's something to consider as well um that's one reason why i also think that the iranians um regards to um, american iranian relations why the iranians probably will not um uh, bother to uh re-enter uh the nuclear deal with the u.s because they just see like a, a, such an erratic actor because if say if like ron DeSantis um gets elected in 2024 and iran were to have um re-enter the nuclear agreement that'll get scrapped immediately because people like ron DeSantis are um that faction of the gop especially is insanely zionist and they will just scrap the that deal so it's like a waste of time um and political capital spent trying to deal with the u.s so most of these countries will just go towards a more stable um actor both domestically and internationally in china to um try to mediate disputes but i don't think that these um mediation efforts by china will be like the cure-all for a lot of the problems in the middle east there's still going to be um countries motivated by like civilizational ambitions to um reassert themselves in certain areas that they believe are like rightfully theirs or where they've had like historic influence and they're gonna um they're definitely going to clash in certain ways but i do think that china will not add fuel to the fire by using these really perfidious Albion tactics that um that the um Anglo-Saxons have like perfected 
in terms of creating like uh, divided rule scenarios and just trying to destabilize the region as much as possible to prevent like like a hegemon from emerging and all of that. What do you think? What do you think would be more stabilizing for the Middle East? A normalization between relationships, uh, a normalization between Saudi and Iranian relationship, or a normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israeli relations. Oof. Um. I mean, both of those things have happened at this point, <laughs> right? I mean, I yes, yes. I think people, yeah, um, yeah. If you look at, um, talk to a number of like security experts, it's pretty much an open secret that they're that, um, Israel and Saudi Arabia are cooperating a ton on military affairs, anti-Iran stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, on military. Anti um, they just haven't like formalized a lot of um, like, so some of like the diplomatic issues and also like certain travel issues as well but they are pretty much um aligned on that end and um i'd even argue that most of gulf, the gulf arab states that are um wary of turkish influence too are in many ways um pacting with israel just for out of pure real politique because of israel's um technological superiority in uh, like the military domain they're sharing a lot of that to uh, balance against not just iran but also potential um turkish incursions in, in that area but um um that question i think um definitely saudi iran because that's just been a multi-decade type of um proxy conflict in many respects that any type of effort to get them to tone down um, tensions would really reduce a lot of conflict, whether it's like in Lebanon, Iraq, um, Eastern Saudi Arabia as well, which has a pretty large Shia minority, uh, Yemen, wherever. Heck, even um, some places like Nigeria as well have um, certain um proxy conflicts that put um, Sunni and Shiite fu fundamentalists against each other. There, there is um, a lot of conflict zones where the, where Iranian and Saudi interests like clash. And if China is able to at least like stabilize like Yemen, for example, that would go a long way to at least <clears throat> lowering the temperature there. And so that that will definitely bring more stability. Yeah, the Israel question. I just think that like the um, the issue here is also like just like the U.S. involvement like in the Middle East. Whenever you have like um, the U.S. entering the mix, it just makes the situation just much much worse, and um, it gives like. Um, Israel like the idea that um, it can just get away with more because if it's only left with with Arab partners, it's going to not have as much wiggle room when it comes to um, what it can do in terms of like external interference and also its domestic pol political situation is getting very volatile as well. So its maneuvering space is going to be very limited and in a multipolar environment, Israel um is not going to be able to get um get away with a lot of the geopolitical trickery it could pull 
during um, the like the later stages of the, of the Cold War and the unipolar moment. I mean, it's it's. I think you're you're the the point that you're making there on U.S. involvement is really the crux of this. Um, because I'm still like even even now as we're talking about, it, I'm still having trouble figuring out like how does Saudi Arabia and Iran get over their beef? Because there's there's, can, there's a lot there, you know. There's I can jump in there for, cool. for you. I mean, I'm, I'm still it, wrestling with it myself. I can jump in there for it because it it just makes sense for it to, to do it because it's it's negative. It's it's a negative outcome for them to be at loggerheads to them to them have proxy wars going on. If you see what's going on in Yemen, it's a, it's a total mess for Saudi Arabia. They've been stuck there for for almost a decade at this point in this unwinnable war. Yemen's like a Vietnam or an Afghanistan in its own right, where you know every single power in the Middle East that's gone in there to intervene or to change a government or to fight rebels has been bogged down there and stuck there. Egypt learned the hard way, and you know while they were in Yemen, they got struck, they got hit by Israel, um, and that's why they lost the '67 war. Uh, or one of the the main reasons, like they, it's it's not a place to to be. It's a Vietnam down there, and the the thing is, a lot of a lot of like national security experts will admit this now. They wouldn't have admitted this a couple of years ago, especially during the height of the Yemen war, that the Houthi rebels do have a mind of their own. So they're not completely beholden to Iran. Like Hezbollah is, you know, they're primary benefactor is 100% Iran and then you know the various religious donations they get from you know Shia religious groups however the Houthis are are you know they're a different animal that the 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 version of 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 Islam that they practice is not you know Zaydi Shiism is not the same as the Twelver Shiism in Iran they do have minds of their own however they do they do Iran did take the opportunity when they when Saudi Arabia was bogged down to throw them a bone like they definitely do provide them support, mm-hmm. and they do that, and they were doing that intentionally to, uh, you know, the bog Saudi down as much as possible. And I think the limit, I think, where you really see the kind of the critical moment is when there was either a Houthi drone attack, or if it, w- it could have been a ballistic missile from Iran. No one really knows what the answer of this is. That blew up a Saudi oil processing plant right, in, the eastern, in eastern Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia. And and we and and we don't really even still know what happened. Like you know, the, the Houthis took credit for it. The Iranians denied it, but I've read a lot of stuff that seemed kind of convincing that the that it was actually an Iranian missile that that pulled it out, pulled it off. So it is like if there was a military conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran, Saudi Arabia would pummel them absolutely. No, excuse me, vice versa. Iran would pummel Saudi Arabia. Like it wouldn't even be. The, the, the Saudis wanted to stand a chance against Iran, and I, I mean, that's, it could that's be a, a, it, and there could be an absolute. If there was a military conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran, it would be a devastating, an absolutely global. It would be global devastation in terms of like the oil markets that would be shut down. The Strait of Hormuz would be completely shut down. It would be it would be awful. So it's such a dangerous situation for Saudi to be in, and um, I think in the case of Iran, they just. You know, any type of normalization would, would, would work, especially if it comes to, um, you know, there could be a geopolitical aim against, you know, just just uh, thwarting the Israelis in the United States. But I don't know, maybe, Jose, you can jump in there to see what if uh, if you if you kind of have more insight into what 
the incentive for, is for Iran. What's in it for Iran? <laughs> yeah. um, I think that for them, um, at least calming tensions with Saudi Arabia could um, also um, allow Iran to focus more on its like domestic affairs because there, it has a ton of domestic problems from its economy and all of that. And whenever um, a lot of like the opposition in Iran, from what I've read, um, is largely motivated by the fact that like um, they're just spending so much money on on Arab affairs and like funding proxies or other initiatives in Arab countries that that money could be allocated to bolstering its economy. It doesn't help that it's pretty much sanctioned and largely isolated on the world economic stage. And by at least like normalizing diplomatic relations and um, opening up like trade opportunities with the Saudis, like the Iran, um, Iran does like benefit from this, um, not having another state treating it like a pariah um, on the world stage, especially one that has like a pretty um, strong degree of like um, economic clout, like um, the Saudis do. Um, there, there definitely is as well. Um, if I think like, um, there are like Iranian Im imams that like like ultimately like say that, um, that this intra Islamic beef too is just not beneficial because at the end of the day, um, the overbearing Western influence for them is like the number one enemy, and the more they just fight amongst each other, um, it just benefits uh whichever external actor is waiting in the wings to um swoop in and try to um, exert influence steal their oil yeah <laughs> yeah and i and i think like there, there's like another like it's just like another like uh type of like pointless type of quagmire um yeah there'll be like territorial disputes and all of that that's like common you even see that with like china and india but a lot of that stuff can be patched up pretty easily but um it doesn't make sense for um iran to like um this could continue um, with this course, especially if um, you have like a positive external actor like China that's at least willing to um, listen to both sides' grievances and try to like reach a compromise as well. Because the funny thing is, um, China before, whenever um, Xi Jinping made his visit to Riyadh like in December for this big um, kind of like Gulf uh, Cooperation Council event, they did issue a statement that was somewhat critical, uh, a joint statement, China and um, the GCC issued a statement that was somewhat critical of Iran's like destabilizing influence in the region, which almost read like a kind of like neocon, like Zionist, like readout um, to some extent. But um, and it did provoke somewhat of a diplomatic kerfuffle between Iran and China. But then, like, I think that may have been um, kind of a ploy by China, used by China to try to get both um, the Gulf Arab states and Iran to, like, the negotiating table to, like, hammer out some type of agreement to, like, just cool off on a host of issues. Do, do, do you want to know what a, uh, a, a modern... Uh, border clash looks like without without u.s influence the china india border dispute yeah 
I love you know what happened there. Show. <laughs> the, the, these, but what happened there was that, I mean, it was deadly. It was people died, but a bunch of guys got into a like a bunch of soldiers got into a fist fight, and basically, they they started fighting with like bat baseball bats and stuff. They didn't even draw their firearms, and that was the border dispute. And, and that's a, a border that's been contested for. I don't know what, 30 years at this point. I'm not sure exactly when the border dispute began over that patch of, I guess, mountain terrain, right? But that's what, that's what, I mean, I'm not saying that things can obviously get worse, but it, but I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a, uh, a sample or a case study of what a modern, um, a modern border conflict can look like. Now, in the case of just, you know the 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 implications here. What do you think? And this is the big question that everyone's thinking about. The United States, the reaction to it so far has been pretty mild. So the U.S. has basically said, "All right, well, good for them. Sure, it's not going to last. Seems stupid anyway. Like that's kind of their reaction. Like, yeah, sure, whatever. If they want to make a dumb, stupid deal, then they could do it. Whatever. It's probably not going to work out. Like it's just they're kind of dismissive, but." They're not coming out and being like, this is a dangerous alliance of two, you know, a dangerous pariah state that's seeking nuclear weapons and, you know, another state that, you know, we've been disappointed with, with their actions, with murdering the journalist and all of that stuff. There hasn't been that reaction from the Biden administration. Do you think there's something to that or is that just, you know, is it, are they apathetic? Do they expect it? I'm just curious to hear what your thought is on the reaction from the United States? Well, I see it more as just the fact that the U.S. is probably going to take the L with regards to the Middle East, whatever happens with the Middle East, because they just have to focus mm. all their resources on, like, Russia and China, which is, like, an insane dual containment project of, like, epic proportions. And any type of, like... um of like allocation of resources more resources towards like the middle east i it's like at that point um it's just going to be like really unsustainable this is like imperial overstretch to like the nth degree so they're just gonna have to like say like okay um let this stuff like sort itself out like in the middle east but um there's gonna still be like a residual like u.s presence but it's gonna be scaled down by like a lot yeah, it's gonna be like a skeleton, a skeleton crew in Syria, in northern Syria, until they even eventually leave. Um, I don't see this as an alliance. The um, Iran, like Saudi thing, is an alliance because I do believe um, Eastern geopolitical strategists who have been hitting the books hard are are probably looking at like the broader scope of Western history, going all the way back to the Greeks with these crazy. Um, entangling alliances um, that like Greek polities were engaging in all the way to the present from Plato to NATO literally um, and just like thinking these type of like entangling alliances are just super unsustainable and they lead to some of like the most preventable like geopolitical disasters imaginable and they're just saying like hell no we're not going to create like some um, facsimile of NATO I mean you have like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and some other orgs, but there's like uh, very little evidence to suggest that these are like um, turning into like the, these really intricate um, alliance structures that you've seen throughout Western history that just like lead to um, 
unstable like security dilemma type of issues and i think there's going to be a more flexible model of like supranational types of um governance and ways of handling um disputes among eurasian states that's going to be different from the west you're not going to see these balance these really ideologically based like balancing coalitions or other forms of alliances that just are designed to create security dilemmas in whichever like area they're based in and it's probably going to be much more flexible too it's going to be very real politic oriented and it's not going to um, be motivated by like a universalist um mindset either yeah because i mean the lessons you can really learn from from time from world war 1 is that when when one state enters an alliance with another state it kind of forces other states to enter alliances because you know what alliances were formed in world war 1 or or pre world war 1 um you know essentially as a defense mechanism against you know one other country and it forces them to be isolated and make alliances with other countries and what happens it it goes from a unipolar system into a bipolar system and it, and it can happen pretty quickly and I think that most states, and especially if it's not ideologically driven, you know, they don't need to be bound together by the hip, and they don't need to join each other in, in, in stupid ventures. In the case of Iran and Saudi Arabia, I don't think anyone expects them to be, like, best friends or anything. It's just, like, the start of something that's like, okay, like, they're going to talk about the stuff now. It's not going to be some some unreasonable coalition against Iran right now anymore in the Middle East where, you know, these states are going to have uh, conversations. They're not just going to resort to, like, these awful proxy wars that have been going on over the past decade, not only in Yemen but also in Syria where, I mean, essentially it was just a giant battlefield for, for six, seven years. Uh, I mean, it still is to some degree, not as bad as it certainly was in, you know, 2014, 2013, but... It was just an awful, horrible war that was 100% avoidable, and um, I, I think I think these states are really starting to realize that uh, this is this is unsustainable. Now, there's a couple of other hotspots in the Middle East that are looming over. I I believe the other countries. Um, you know, pretty much every it seems like certainly every state in the Middle East right now there there's a, there's a a level of in, political instability. Um, Iran being an obvious one. Lebanon at this point is a failed state. Um, it's it's it, it's practically a failed state. So I mean, I'm not a hundred percent sure what the implications will be. Um, but I mean, it's it's on the border of Israel. And there are, um, you know, Lebanon's another state that's re it's it's divided ethnically and and uh, by religion as well, and and um, of course there's the the political situation that's going on in Israel right now, and and I think that's really the most interesting aspect of this story is seeing what their reaction is, like what what's like what's going on with this, the with the Israelis because there's so much political instability going on right now. To a degree, we're not really used to as Americans looking at them. We're always kind of used to the, the Israelis. The only threat that they supposedly have is one of like you know Hamas or something, you know, of a, of a of a single terrorist attack or a settler getting killed by somebody in the West Bank. Uh, what's your take on on the Israeli response and and how they're going to deal with this? 
Um, I think that Israel, because of the lack of like uh, strategic depth, and it has, and um, also with how it's sugar daddy in the U.S. focusing its attention more towards East Asia, it's going to be consumed by like domestic, like really um, divisive, like domestic politics. But and there's a lot of demographic reasons behind that as the country uh, becomes like much more um, religious and ethno-nationalist owing to the the growing number of like um, Misrahim, Sephardic, and even like Haredim, like um, Jews. It's uh, There's going to be a clash there. There's uh, Something's going to go down. And it's not just going to be like, palace, like settlers versus Palestinians. It's going to be those more religious um, if no nationalist Jews versus like the more secular like Ashkenazim um, establishment there and there's going to be like um, a lot of stuff kicking off there where Israel's not a big country like to begin with so that's going to occupy a lot of its like security resources and so it's going to be very constrained in terms of what it can do abroad like any type of like greater Israel fantasy that some like really <clears throat> some of these like freak show zionist movements have been trying to push that's going to be totally discarded and it's also has, has to balance with the fact that um it's trying to uh, israel is trying to cultivate better relations with arab states we're not going to put up with that and then when you have like um iran i mean um russia and china getting more involved in middle eastern affairs in certain ways it's just not, um, Israel is just going to be very constrained overall um, in terms of its like geopolitical ambitions. Like I said before, I don't see multipolarity as um, a conducive environment for any type of like um, greater like Israel, like irredentist movement or anything of that sort. And you add in this like volatile domestic situation Israel's gonna have to, like it's going to stay put. I I do still see, um, you'll see like some like Mossad trickery here and there, um, like in Iran because of just like of how like anti um Iran like some elements of like the Israeli government are, and they also have um a launch pad in Azerbaijan too. And there is a pretty significant Azeri population in Iran that has been rumored to function as like assets for the Mossad to stir up trouble. But outside of that, um, Israel is probably going to stay put because it's going to be going through probably one of its like most volatile phases of its um, history in the next like decade or so because of all these domestic issues. Yeah, it's interesting. So I haven't really been paying attention to Israeli politics over the past, I don't know, year and a half or so. I just haven't been following it since really since Bibi got back in office. And my perception on it has has been that obviously Israel is getting more right wing every year. Um, and one of the reasons is because of the, a lot of the a lot of the Jews that are being attracted to go there are just ultra nationalist. Just like think of think of how much of a nationalist you have to be to go out in such a like um, 
such a unhospitable situation, like going out in the settlements in the West Bank and just kind of claiming land for yourself. You got to be pretty extreme to do that. Yeah, and, and it's it's kind of lending to ultimately like really big political issues within the state itself because even like the even the most hardened American uh, Israeli defenders like Alan Dershowitz, for example, and even like some of my some of my like friends who are who are super Zionist, even they'll say, "Hey." The Israeli settlers should just go. Like we should just iron something out, and settlers should get out of it there, and then we should give them whatever land, the, the Palestinians whatever land, and just stop this for for once, and, and we can preserve our Jewish state, and they can have their thing, and you know we don't have to have the occupation going on anymore. And you know that's at this point, I mean, it sounds kind of reasonable, but where we're at now with Israeli politics, there, there's like a systemic. Uh, system of them just kind of taking land on a, on a regular basis from pal from Palestinians bulldozing houses on a regular basis, and um, the the current Netanyahu government is uh his, his coalition includes some real yeah crazies. Do you, you probably know more about this than I do? Just again, because I I have been following Israeli politics too closely over the past year, but. Do you, what do you know about the the coalition there? I've um studied it somewhat. Definitely not an expert on the issue, but um, I know that key to um Netanyahu's return to power was um his pact with um this one really weird party that's uh called like um Otsma like Yehudi which it literally like translates into like Jewish strength or Jewish power. It is a total like freak show, like ethno nationalistic power and part of like this pact was giving this guy um um Itamar Ben Gavir like a like an, a key like national security position, I believe like Minister of National Security and like the, when when these people are like given these key positions, they're obviously going to take much more hardline stances on the settlement issue because part of like the growing um, uh, influence of like settler parties in Israeli right wing politics, it comes with like more clashes with Palestinians, and this is actually um an interesting um. Foot, uh, development too because I've talked to some people who've told me that and this is explains why I think that Israel is going to retrench more on some foreign policy affairs most of these settler parties tend um to come from like um are more like Middle Eastern Jews from like Arab countries and even from Iran and these guys are not as interested in clashing with Arab states or even Iran for that matter and as a result they're just like focused more on like confronting Palestinians like, like at this juncture or like um trying to make like Israel more of like an um ethno-religious state and like totally desecularizing it in many respects um this these changes in Israel's politics are going away from like the Theodore Herschel model who for all intents and purposes um Theodore 
her sole, like the worst you could say was like an ethno-nationalist, like liberal, who was um, many respects like copying a lot of like the liberal nationalist movements that were taking place across Europe in the 19th century. But now this is just going towards like a more like um, reactionary, like ethno-state model that's like looks like a LARP, but it's turning into like a really nasty political project. Yeah, I mean, I think their their motion towards you know more more radical and very specifically right wing ideologies is probably also tangentially related to the reason why the United States uh, didn't really have a big fuss about this deal that happened with China uh, between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. I mean, think about it. You know, you, we were talking about this before the show started. I don't know if it actually ended up on the recording or not, but. Uh, They've been invested. Israel, that is, has been investing very heavily uh, in in the right wing here in the United States, and you know, I think, and and tell me if I'm stretching here, the fact that we have a Democrat in power at the moment that you know this deal is going through probably resonates a little bit with the fact that you know the the uh, Israeli Israeli lobby isn't necessarily paying enough attention or raising enough outrage with. The Democrats or the or the left wing in, in the United States, um, so it's kind of fallen on deaf ears right now. Perhaps if they were a bit, bit more diversified in their lobbying efforts, we would have made more of a stink about it. You know, we all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. Hold on. What's what's the difference between a Democrat and a Republican when it comes to the Israeli lobby? There isn't a difference. <laughs> well, let me let me let me add. So, <laughs> when the Israeli lobby comes to the Democrat and they tell them to jump, they say how high. When they go to the Republican, they say off what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 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 kind of the, that's the major difference. They're both they're both parties are are very much beholden to the Israeli lobbies, but. It's, um, I feel like there's more, I feel like a lot of liberal Jews in the United States, a lot of them are kind of over it. I think they're kind of, a lot of them are over their kind of connection to, to, to Israel. Um, you know, they have like, they reminisce over maybe their time on birthright, but they're not like obsessing over it every single day. They're like, oh, and then when they see something totally crazy, they'd be like, "Oh shit! Like this, this, this is getting going a little too far." Um, Full disclaimer: the right this, is, this, is a, it. 
per personal anecdote <laughs> like right? yeah. we don't we don't really know yeah um, i'm just saying based off yeah. my experience i have a lot of jewish friends and it's kind right. of generally how it is and it's it, what i'll see from the right especially kind of like the evangelical right uh like protestant right is that they'll they'll use israel as a as a vanguard for everything that defends western civilization and um i think that's where the divergence comes from they they really they they really um project their their values uh, onto israel as a state oh that's even funny um because israel in many respects is becoming like a more of like an oriental despotism like the way it's like gravitating and um funny enough these same republicans that are anti-china hawks like don't realize that um in Israel, um, China is like viewed very positively, like in a lot of polls, and even like um, uh, Yossi Cohen, the former Mossad director, says like this whole like Israel's gonna sit out this whole U.S. versus China geopolitical conflict. Oh yeah, yeah, they're they're um, they're not choosing winners and losers in that one, and and and. Um... It, it, I found some interesting articles in, in uh, Heretz, and I guess this further goes into the schism of, of uh, even even just the, the Jewish population in, in Israel, is that there was, right when the war broke out in Ukraine, there was a lot of protest. There was a lot of um, pro-Ukraine rallies, and then there were also some pro-Russian rallies, and really... And and a lot of Jew, a lot of the Jews that immigrate to Israel now are from former Soviet Union states. A lot of them are from Ukraine, and they're most Jews in Ukraine are Russian speaking. I would say almost all of them are Russian speaking, and they the 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 Jews that it was really based off their their political ideology and who they supported. The more right-wing ones supported Russia and the more kind of liberal ones were, you know, they, they kind of had the same liberal values that you'd find in, in America. I mean, when I say liberal values, I mean like democratic liberal uh, values. Uh, and it was interesting to see that schism in, in relations to like a, a war that's taking place far away from the country in itself. Anecdotally, um, I um, I know a good deal of Israelis um, that come from like Morocco, Tunisia, like other um, North African Middle um, Eastern states who are like very right wing, and they could not care less about the Russo-Ukrainian conflict. They're more just like obsessed with like throwing down Palestinians. To be honest, at this point, like um, they're they're not really jumping on board with like liberal projects. Um, to circle back to evangelicals, I've even seen some polls where younger evangelicals are not as pro-Zionist as pre previous generations either. So even on the right, um, and I think that as like cultural issues become stronger in the US, there's not gonna be much appetite um, for like paying attention to like the latest um, tensions kicking off between like Israelis and Palestinians, like in like a not too distant future and add in like economic constraints. If like the US becomes a much more economically vo volatile, there's just not gonna be as much of a priority of um, backing Israel. Uh, I, I think like at best, it'll, the US will be like chilly towards it. Um, if it gets like a really nasty government in the future, it's like even worse than the current one. 
Yeah, and then there was that human rights report, that human rights watch report that came out two years ago that that labeled Israel as an apartheid state. And, you know, human rights watch is, is as mainstream as you can get. It is not like it is not like alt, like an alternative human rights organization or, or alternative media. It is the mainstream human rights organization. And, you know, they've done a lot of crappy work as well, but usually what they're they're what they publish is in line with the US state or what the US state wants to to condemn. You know, they're they they wrote plenty of articles kind of fanning the flames of a US intervention in Syria uh, in the in the mid two thousands. And they came out with with a with a um you know, an article, no, not an article, that does justice, a 200-page study on on why Israel is an apartheid state. The donorship of Human Rights Watch, I would say, I was listening to Norman Finkelstein on this, and, and this is his claim, and I, I, I think this is, you know, grounded in reality or somewhat, it's reasonable to say this is true, probably at least like 80% of the donors of Human Rights Watch are liberal Jews from New York. And for them to write that, for them to be able to publish that without losing donor support, kind of just shows you the tide in America that it's that it's um, you know, the state itself is 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 losing support um domestically here. And if you just read Haaretz, if you just go through Haaretz and it's there there's a lot of kind of self-hating articles um that are really trashing the Netanyahu government, and, and and there's so many articles that are like, you know, this when did this go so far? And um, it's it, it's definitely at there's definitely a turning point right now. Will the problem be solved between the Israelis and the Palestinians? I don't know, man. Like I I couldn't predict it, but I certainly think that there's there's more constraints, like you said, in getting into a possible military conflict. And of course, they could do some, you know, shenanigans. They could assassinate some scientists from time to time. But what is that really going to do? If they, if they, like, what is the imp, like the overall impact? If they, if they murder an Iranian nuclear physicist every couple of months, is that going to stop? I mean, the- you'd run out pretty quickly. I don't think there's that many <laughs> nuclear scientists in the world, let alone Iran really? specifically. I didn't know. Okay, okay, there's not like a factory program that produces them. No, dude. I mean, like you know, you know, like when people say, "Oh, it's not rocket science," right? When indeed rocket science isn't actually that difficult, and and there are plenty of them. Uh, there's truly not that many nuclear scientists. So that the, the implications of killing off. I mean, maybe not just strictly one. There's a human implication for that, of course, but like geopolitical implication of killing one um you know nuclear phys- physicist sure yeah that's probably not going to do very much but if if they continue doing it it's not they don't grow on trees right these these are these are highly educated highly specified very very difficult type of science uh i don't think that'll fly i don't think that they could sustain that in any meaningful way I don't, I, that would cause um that would that would cause a war if they did it every couple of months, like ad, ad nauseum. Um, as a joke, I will say that uh, I'd be open to to seeing if China would be willing to step in for the uh, Israeli Palestinian peace deal. Because at this juncture, I'd I'd be open to anything to solve that. <laughs> Might be a more uh, like trustworthy third party in that respect. In, in <laughs> Maybe I mean if it works out with Saudi Arabia and Iran, I think that's that seems like a viable option. The the, 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 Shang, the Shanghai Accords. 
Yeah, seriously. And and that's that's what solves Israel Palestine. That would just be like the biggest. I mean, you you know, when it comes to taking yell, and I agree with you that the U, the U.S. has decided to say, all right, we're just going to take the L. If a Democrats, both political parties could probably find some way to blame each other too. So I think it's even politically feasible. You can you can easily just blame everything on on just pick a president going back to George W. Bush and lay it all on him. You know, I mean, I would lay everything on George Bush and Obama almost equally. More George Bush because he started it, but um, you know, both of them are are the the primary. Uh, instigators and in pretty much all the issues right that we see in modern times in the Middle East uh, at least they fan the flames to an extent where it's just horrible but um I mean you could you could the, the next Republican president can blame everything on Biden oh Biden's fucked up everything the next Biden can just blame everything on Trump and both bases are gonna take it hook line hook line and sinker so it won't take too much hard work to, to shed the blame I mean look how quickly everyone forgot about Afghanistan. Like, look how quickly we were able to have this humiliating walk of shame out of Afghanistan. And then immediately, almost instantly, and only took a couple of months, get fully involved in the most horrible military conflict in the 21st century. Without even, like, a real question when it was when we were initially getting involved. It's just, the, the regime just knows how easy our people lose interest and forget about things and and um you know really don't bother questioning policy that, that really brings me back to like this original question that you guys have been doing a really good job at answering uh over the the course of the time that we've been speaking which is you know how is it that saudi arabia and iran drop their differences and move forward with the deal and i think we've we've outlined a lot of good reasons for that but i think you know part of this is that I think we've just been misled about how grave or how serious, you know, our differences are. And in particular, how grave or serious the differences of Saudi Arabia and Iran were in light of other greater geopolitical interests. Yeah, there might be something to it because, I mean, these conflicts have been like at most like proxy at best and um, there's ways to handle proxy conflicts without them turning like directly kinetic um, to some degree. And um, there's always going to be like competing interests, obviously, um, in geopolitics. But um, I never really um, bought like the idea that um, both of those countries were like existential like threats to each other. Um, and... Even like, um, take for example, um, Iran and Turkey, which have been historical rivals too. They've actually um, been able to kind of like mend fences pretty well over the last decade or so. There was kind of like a um, trifecta forming between um, Iran, Turkey, and Qatar during the Trump administration um, to some extent. They, They were fostering pretty decent relationships. Um, I think whenever um, you don't have like the um, really massive third parties that have like nefarious like intentions of trying to use like divide and rule and other geopolitical stratagems, like 
um, certain regions will naturally reach a kind of like um, equilibrium and stabilize over time. Do you think this? Do you think this reflects a growing? Well, I guess we already answered that question, so I don't think we really need to repeat this. I was going to ask, like, do you think this reflects a growing, um, just like mis? I don't want to say mistrust, but just just a, a global a global alignment. Um, that's that's less U.S. focused, but I think we kind of answered the question that this certainly or can be interpreted that it does really reflect the sadly the end of uh, the one world police the, the, or the, the the unipolar or the, the unipolar moment is, is sadly seems like to be on its end yeah actually um i was reading a report um from the cradle too they um it was there was an interesting facet about the negotiations between um iran saudi arabia and china that took place in uh, beijing none of them were conducted in english whatsoever it was done in farsi saudi arabia uh so i mean arabic and um mandarin and which is like another sign of this anglo-american dominance um gradually waning on the world stage i mean most of these countries they have um they're realizing that like if you have a problem with another country just settle like the beef between the uh, two of you or get like some other third party that will negotiate like in good faith and not um be wedded to the idea that you have to be attached to the collective west for every issue under the sun and i think countries are just starting to experiment more uh, and i'd say like most of these countries may start just um using more multi-vector um foreign policies where they try to play um the west off of um the eurasian giants to to maximize um their interests as well and and, and here and here's some, some some interesting notes that i i jotted down the other day and um it just kind of shows global trends and this is between just the support for Russia or the lack of con, con, uh, condemnation of the Russian of, of the war in Ukraine. So the number of countries have so this is over the past year, the number of countries actively condemning Russia has fallen from 131 to 122. Uh, most of these are emerging economies. And this block represents about 30 percent of the global population. Um, and then the number of neutral countries has risen from 32 to 35, which represents 30% of the global population and includes Colombia, Turkey, Qatar. Um, and then we have, there's been a shift in in a large, excuse me, there has been a large shift in the stance among countries that lean towards Russia, whose numbers has increased from 29 to 30. And that includes China. That also includes South Africa, Mali. Burkina Faso, and there is a huge alignment with African countries, a lot with with Russia, and um, yeah, I mean it's just like, I mean these these numbers, I mean just this five years ago, this wouldn't have seemed like an event that would take place if the conflict took if if this conflict took place back in 2014 or 2015 when a lot of Russian nationalists are kind of um, upset with Putin over or, you know, they, they blame the Russian government for acting too slowly for, for, for this. Um, I don't know if you would have got the same 
I don't want to say global support, but for for the war, but at the very least, not a total alignment with whatever the U.S. decided to do. Um, I'd added another point too. Some um, political scientists have been studying um, the rise of like global populism and like nationalism and other per, um, permutations of like more like <clears throat> localist movements. Um, maybe a factor as well. And I think COVID has really accelerated it too, where there has been a more like every nation for itself type of environment where now countries are just going to start thinking about like raw national interests and not engaging in these quixotic um, ideological campaigns that sometimes like require them to be obsessively focused about some ethno-sectarian beef that's kicking off like thousands of miles away and these countries are just going to start retrenching as a whole and they're going to have a, a lot of like domestic issues they have to figure out like their supply chain problems and other stuff it's going to take priorities like managing their households more so than um worrying about like their distant neighbors or stuff that's go um taking even place farther away as well i'd, I'd call attention to that as well yeah, and you know what? I think the, the moral of the story is that there could be a conflict going on around the world, and you could be horrified by it. And I'm certainly, I still am horrified by the war in, in Ukraine, and I feel awful, and I hate reading, I, I don't like reading about it that as as much, because it's just dark, and it's it's an upsetting event. And I don't blame people for getting upset when they read about it. However, and this sounds cold, you know, I'm I'm definitely American centric where I really just care about America at the end of the day and and honestly that kind of extends to the the English speaking world to some degree. Um but I don't really care about borders that are going that are far from me. You know, like if there's a if there's a border conflict between Russia and Ukraine or if there's a border conflict really anywhere I can realize that it doesn't matter to us what happens. Like it doesn't matter to us on where where we live. Like of course you just want the war to end as soon as possible, but you know, it's kind of outside of our control and you really can't play god and trying to manufacture or or uh really impact it. So you know how like sometimes there'll be some major geopolitical event that happens and you know, it'll be in some odd country that you, you probably never would have heard of if that event didn't take place. And I just think to myself, you know, no one really knows about this country. Um, like, no one knows what Belarus is, for example. Now everyone knows what the country Belarus was. A couple, even Ukraine, I think a lot of Americans thought that Ukraine was probably a part of Russia. Um, people, most people don't know what Belarus is. They probably thought, if anything, that it was a, it was a, a uh, region in Russia. And, you know, it doesn't really matter that much what goes on in Belarus because it doesn't affect the, the U.S. And um, I wish more people, I think more people are really gravitating towards that where, you know, these far off borders don't really impact our day to day. Yeah, I mean, when you look back at the unipolar moment, it was every um, universalist um, and like globalist boosters a wet dream because they, they thought they could just turn um, the whole planet into one gigantic 
shopping mall um, where you could <clears throat> totally deracinate people and strip them of their identities and everybody would be like on like singing like Kumbaya and all that stuff. But reality is that uh, people still have like very strong um, attachments to their ethnicity, regional cultures or um, and stuff that goes well, well beyond like ideological abstractions or like economic figures. So there's always like that natural penchant. And I'm not very convinced by that um, certain arguments that that le necessarily leads to conflict per se. But um, yeah, I, I do believe that the upcoming decades, um, things will get more insular on certain fronts, but they're still very much like elite capture in the US, like highest echelons of the national security establishment, the party system, and the media that wants beef um, with countries like China. And, and as I've said before too, um, I do think that um, this new Cold War um, against um, China is going to be used as a way to unify the US as its domestic situation continues to deteriorate. You're starting to see these takes across media of rallying against China as like a unifying factor in an increasingly polarizing uh, U US. So we, um, people should keep their eyes out on that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that. And and you you can see the early signs of that with with the I mean, the early signs have happened already. But the I, I think a, a, a big inflection point there was just the FBI coming out and saying that the COVID was a was due to a lab leak. There, there's a, there has to be a political motive behind that, and it's, it's. I mean, come on, everyone knew, has, has known this for a year, and there's a, um, there, there's a Machiavellian reason why our, our secret police has released that information that, that they, they believe with confidence that, that the COVID nineteen came from a, the, the Yuhan the. The Wuhan lab, so it's um it's scary, but it's like you know you it, it, war with China, which is just gonna it's just it'd be such a horrible situation. And I guess the question is is like do we are we that insane where you know we would we would go into that conflict? You know, I was reading. I don't know if uh, you read the blog uh, the Dreisen Report at all, but J J Jacob Jacob Dreisen. Which is like he's a, it's a very entertaining blog, I will say, and uh, yeah, he's a very interesting guy, and his his blog is is very funny, and he had an article the other day where he was you know saying that DeSantis has become president, and it's going to be a guaranteed war with China when that happens, and the reason the Navy's pushing it, and it's because the reason why the Navy's pushing the war is because they didn't get their reckoning yet, like the reckoning yet, like the Army did, and and. Uh, in the Middle Eastern wars, and you know the, the Navy is just used to you know being far from the battlefield, but when they go to war with China, that's when they're actually going to experience it. And that was one of his last articles that he published. And um, I don't know if that's if there's real truth to that or or, or what, but um, I mean, there, you're certainly there's certainly a, it's certainly a high risk situation for for U.S. sailors if there were to be some type of conflict there. And you know, it's I just hope that doesn't come that happen. 
Um, yeah, and I, I'd also, um, I knew this was coming too, because if there was one interesting development that took place during the Trump administration, which was marked by crazy um, cultural and political polarization was, when it came down to the Hong Kong votes and the um, condemnation of the situation in um, Xinjiang with the Uyghurs, um, it was almost like universally um, both parties voted in favor of condemning China with the like, sole exception of like Thomas Massey being like the nay vote in those cases. Like there was like in, um, insanely strict transpartisan discipline in that respect. And it was largely a precursor now to this crystallizing consensus that um, China needs to be taken on, uh, head on, whether it's like militarily or through like subversion or um, um, economically as well. I guess we'll see when the Ukraine project ends. What what's you know how this proceeds? Because I don't think that I don't think we had the cap the, the the U.S. has the capability of doing both at once. So they're gonna have to. Oh yeah. Settle settle what's left of Ukraine and um, reinstigate. But um, we are almost at an hour and a half, so uh, I think we will end this episode. Uh, Jose, before we end it though. Can you please plug all your stuff? I mentioned a couple of it in the beginning, but uh, let us know or let everyone know where to find your your work and your podcast and where you, and where you contribute. Yeah, I um write for Geopolitics and Empire, Big League and Big League Politics. Um, I also have my own Substack, Jose Nino Unfiltered. You can find that at josbcf.substack.com. Also on that Substack is my podcast, El Nino Speaks. I talk about a host of issues ranging from geopolitics to domestic affairs from a more like nationalist, dissident, right-wing perspective. And that podcast is also um, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. All right. So yeah, check it out. I listen to Jose's podcast all the time. I get a lot out of it. And uh, I want to thank everyone for listening to another episode of Bro History. I forgot to mention this in the beginning of the show, but please fill out the demographic. I shouldn't call it the demographic survey. It makes it sound way more creepy. The demographic survey. The demographic <laughs> survey. We want to know who you are. I mean, it is a demographic survey. That's what it is. I'll just be honest. I'll be transparent. The survey is for advert for advertisers to understand who they're selling their products to. It's so that that's, we don't that's offer the purpose up boring of, that's, ads to you. That's what it is. It, that's the purpose of the survey that we're requesting that you fill it out. And the reason why it helps us is that the more information that we have, the more money that we get from advertisers. <laughs> and we don't want to Very do this for free forever. <laughs> we put a lot of hard work on this show. So obviously we're looking for ways to monetize it. And um, you also could get $500 if you fill this at this this thing out so chance to why win not fill it out it takes you a couple of seconds and um i think it would be a good way for you to uh you know wipe your conscience of something i don't know what but this this survey filling out this survey will lead you to some sort of salvation one way or another so i'm hyping it up a little bit too much but please for the love of god fill out the survey in the show notes is a survey monkey survey and then make sure that you rate everything five stars and 
you know, put your correct information in there. Um, and then you can also rate and review the podcast as well. That is another way to support our show. And um, we have a Patreon as well where we have uh, bonus episodes. We have a series on the Russian Revolution that we are uh, slowly adding to, but we hope to add more episodes to it soon. So that is behind our, pay, our Patreon uh, uh, membership wall. And then you get access to our Slack account. But first and foremost, fill out that fucking survey that's in the, <laughs> that's in the show notes. Because we absolutely need that filled out. It would be very helpful. Uh, okay, anything else, Danny, before we leave? No, man, I think you covered it. <laughs> okay. Um, peace, everyone. Peace. Hey.